Yates on Sunday. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. Good afternoon and welcome back to Yates on Sunday. Yates is on holidays this weekend and I'm Sarah Carey. And it's time now for our profile interview and this week's special guest is one of Ireland's most influential women. Terry Prone has appeared on Irish and British radio and television since she was a child. Best known as an advisor to politicians and captains of industry, Terry is part of the fabled team that emerged from car communications to create an unrivaled reputation in media training. Together with her late husband Tom Savage and son Anton, they built the communications clinic on their extraordinary record of media training, speech writing, reputation management and crisis management. Terry is a prolific writer too. She has published 29 books, including eight critically acclaimed novels, an award-winning collection of short stories and more than a dozen practical guidebooks. She has contributed to the Irish Times, the London Times, the Irish Independent, the Sunday Telegraph, the Guardian and the Daily Mail and currently writes a weekly column with the Irish Examiner and she has very recently become a grandmother. Terry Prone, you're very welcome this morning. Will you take me back and tell me how you met Tom? It was the oddest thing because I, as you said, I have been in television since I was 13. That started with a programme called Teen Talk and a presenter named Bunny Carr. And by the time I was uh, in my late teens, Bunny Carr had become the director of the Catholic Communications Centre, which was doing the most interesting work worldwide in helping nuns and priests communicate on radio and television. This is before any of the scandals. And Bunny rang me up this day and said that he wanted me to give a homiletics course. And I said, what's homiletics? And he said, it's priests giving sermons. And I said, Bunny, I don't know anything about sermons. He said, no problem. You'll be fine. Um, They do their sermon, you record it, and then you react to it. You know from acting, from television and radio, you know what you don't know. And I'll put in one of my senior lecturers, a man named Father Tom Savage, to watch you to make sure you don't make a mistake. That was fine. So I was dealing with what seemed to me to be terribly old priests. They were at least in their 40s, giving sermons. And I was getting more and more interested And then suddenly this younger priest who'd been set to watch me got up and walked out and my heart sank and I thought, oh dear God, I've done something desperate. And in the coffee break, I went into Bunny's office and said, "Okay, what did I do wrong? And he said, how do you mean? And I said, that priest walked out. And he said, yeah, he came and said you didn't need to be supervised, you were absolutely grand. And I thought, oh, that's only great. And then I got a few opportunities to see this priest lecturing and doing assessments and I had never in my life seen anything like it. He was the single most interesting human being I had ever met. He had this wonderful mind. He had a classics degree, theology. He he just had a mixture of things from classics to sociology and he had the capacity to inspire people even when they didn't want to be inspired. And I just thought this was the most wonderful thing to be close to this person, learning from them. I didn't know that at that stage he had decided to leave the priesthood because 
of an incident where a bishop refused to listen to him on a child molesting issue involving a priest that had been reported to him. And he had decided, OK, if they're not going to listen to me, I'm the first priest educated in sociology in Queen's University, Belfast, if they are going to invest in me and then not listen to my, I'm, you know, something, I'm out of here. And he left the priesthood. And three years later, we were married. I just got very lucky. And, but he was a priest. So it can't have gone down well in your family. That this, you had this relationship. Well anywhere. At that stage, priests didn't leave the priesthood. Mm. And um, I remember there was an actual Late Late Show about it that Tom was on. We had um, death threats, just about everything. My father was a very interesting man. He was a passionate socialist, a really left-wing socialist, and at the same time a very traditional Catholic. And to have his daughter marrying a priest was just shocking to him. And so... He didn't talk to me for three years. And during those three years, I lived at home because I believed in the old thing of you didn't give scandals. So there was no way I was going to move in with Tom before we were properly married. And during those three years, my father didn't talk to me. Now, what was magnificent about him was that about six weeks before we got married, my father came to me and said he, he was wrong and he would like to give me away on the wedding day. And what do you think changed his mind? I suspect that watching my mother suffering because she, we had, I mean, my older sister and me, we were very close, tight family. And to have that ruptured by a, a wall of cold marble, a sense of, no, she's no longer part of it. Mm. I think it just gradually came in on him that, Whatever the orthodoxy of it, the humanity of it was different. And did you have doubts during that time? No, never. Why not? I don't know. I just was absolutely certain. There was an inevitability. Once Tom came into my life, it made sense. Total sense. There was no possibility of doing anything other than marrying him. You were in love with him. I was besotted with him. And did he ever worry that maybe he was doing the wrong thing? No, no. he was absolutely certain to. That was the the good thing about the difficult years. And they were, there was a lot of suffering because when your families find what you're doing as upsetting as they did, then that causes great pain. Hmm. But... It it all eventually went away. It all eventually evened out and there was no kind of remnant of the bad years. Um, I imagine then that must have been helpful to you then when it came to seeing other people in difficult circumstances, particularly as Ireland evolved. You know, as we tried to get this liberal uh, progress going about, say, people who were gay or unmarried mothers or that kind of thing that... You, did it help you see the humanity in those apparently political I would say that much problems? more um, the educative factor was Tom because um, I remember a, a priest who absolutely adored him saying to me, you know, I, I, 
I, I'm delighted for the two of you and I'm he didn't know that Tom had left the priesthood for another reason but he said he was such a good priest and I said yeah he still is he, Tom continued only perhaps on steroids to do all of the caring stuff that a priest does all the pastoral work I don't think I ever came home early in the afternoon and found Tom in the house that he didn't have somebody that he was counselling, minding, taking through a crisis. And I would just say, hey, do you want coffee? No, don't even introduce yourselves. Grand, and I'd go off somewhere else. And so it was that kind of total concern that Tom had. And he had a great phrase for a good marriage. He always said that a good marriage was a competition of generosities. Oh, isn't that so nice? Hmm. Um, now, another major event in your life, and it's something a lot of people, I think, listening to you these days as you're commenting on many radio and TV programmes don't know about you, is you were involved in a very serious car crash in the early 1980s, like really serious. Will you tell me what happened. It was a great car crash because nobody <laughs> got killed and I was the one injured the most. What happened was that at the time we had a branch of the business in the west of Ireland in Spittle. And uh, Tom and Anton, who was then about six or seven, had headed on last day of August um, and I was to join them after I had done something or other. So I headed off and because it was the last day of August, all the traffic was coming the other way, holiday makers coming back. And as I came round a bend in the road in Leak Slip, I apparently, I have no memory of it, found a car on my own side of the road facing me. Right. The driver had pulled out to pass a line of traffic and never managed to get back in. Mm. He was doing about 50 miles an hour. I was doing about the same. And we just head on. I was driving a little, very light Mazda. He was driving a massive uh, station wagon. My car was reduced to 170 quids worth of scrap metal. And when the fire brigade came, they had terrible difficulty cutting my car apart. And apparently one of the firemen said, "Um, look, pull her out over the back of the seat. She's a goner anyway. And I'm amused to this day to know that I said, don't bank on that. Right. Now, I was totally unconscious, so I don't know how the hell I heard him or got cheeky with him. And I got taken to Blanchardstown Hospital. Broken arms, broken legs, broken face, broken ribs, just about everything smashed except my right hand. But what was most interesting to me was that, in theory, it should have taken ages for them to identify me and then find Tom. But what happened was that in the west of Ireland, in our little thatched cottage that we had at the time, at a certain stage, Tom said to Anton, Anton, I need you to be quiet for a little while because your mum's had a car crash and I need to find out where. And Anton said, how do you know she's had a car crash? And Tom said, now this was 35 years ago um, and I had one of the very early mobile phones. And Tom said, look, she has a mobile phone. I've been ringing it. I'm getting no signal from it. If it was just out of order, she'd have pulled into a hotel and rung me. She hasn't done that. That means she's had a car crash. And he worked out, as an old newsman, how to find out where. He simply rang all the guard stations back across the road, 
from Dublin to the West. And sure enough, when he had leak slip, they said, yeah, we have her. And she's been taken to Blanchardstown. So he was able to be at the hospital within hours, whereas it might have taken six or seven hours if he hadn't been such an old newspaper man. Yeah. You know, an old newsman. Um, So how long did it take you to recover from that? Well, I, I should have been in the hospital for a long time and then in a convalescent place with rehab and all that. But the thing was that four weeks after the accident, the nurses dropped me. And when you have that many broken bones, to be dropped on the floor from a considerable height is just the most painful experience. And when they got me back on the bed, I said, I'm leaving here today. And they sort of went there, there. And when Tom arrived, I could hear him out in the corridor and they accosted him and they said, Mr. Savage, your wife's a bit disturbed today. Um, She (laughs) says she's going home. And Tom said, um, if she wants to go home, I'll take her home. And they said, hang on, you don't understand. She is completely helpless. Everything other than her right hand is broken. She can't clean herself. She can't go to the... There's nothing she can do. You would, And she's a big, heavy woman and you couldn't carry her. And I could hear my husband saying, ah, I've carried syphilitic owl fellas. I think I can carry my wife. And... I didn't know where to begin processing that. I mean, I was delighted that he was going to carry me, but what was it with the syphilitic outfellas? And then I discovered later that he had spent about six months of his um, work as a psychiatric social worker in a mental hospital in Purdysburn in the north, where apparently they used to dump men suffering from the final stages, general paralysis of the insane, of syphilis. And the nurses fought him and Tom said no. And he took me home and he simply took care of me. And I was completely and utterly helpless. And he wasn't alone. Anton, even though he was very, very small, was incredibly helpful because I had to be taken everywhere by wheelchair. And he worked out early how to work the wheelchair because an awful lot of people think a wheelchair is simple but you can end up upending the person onto their face and he also got a great deal of fun out of the wheelchair. Now one of the major side effects was that was because your face had been so badly damaged you required extensive plastic surgery and I've seen photographs of you from before the crash you look nothing like you used to. That's right. I actually wrote a short story about this that won the Francis McManus Award because, and it wasn't a short story at all, it was totally fact. We were in the West in our little thatched cottage for Christmas one year, the year after the crash. Crash was in August, right, so it's now December. And I have never seen my face in the interim because if you think about it, once you're in a wheelchair, you're not at the level of mirrors. So I never seen my face. So Tom is decorating the tree and he hands me a box of these shiny round baubles and they're silvery ones. And I suddenly see my reflection and I realise that's what, that's what I look like. I don't look like me anymore. And I just went bananas. Now, because my jaws were locked tight, Tom couldn't even understand why I was crying so hard and so upset. So eventually he worked out the thing of the the face and he said, yeah, yeah, your face is totally different. But, I mean, 
I've been looking at it for the last six months and I've got used to it. You'll get used to it too. And went on decorating the tree and I wanted to kill him. <laughs> but of course, he was absolutely right. He, w- he would naturally in any given day see my face more than I would. But it was necessary because it was completely lopsided and weird to have plastic surgery. But even today, um, I would never watch a television programme that I'm on because, do you know when you're watching television and it's out of sync, the person's mouth is not working with the audio. Yes. That's the way my face is to me. It just, it's totally wrong now. So the great thing is, I'm behind it. I inflict it on other people. The hell with them. Did you need any counselling or anything? I mean, I know nowadays probably everybody'd run into, I shouldn't say that sounds pejorative, but they would seek a professional to maybe help them through something like that. Did you need any of that? No, I, I think that the key thing about a really tremendous car crash like this was, first of all, I had amnesia. So I remembered nothing of the car crash. Secondly, my short-term memory was shot. So I remember very little of the subsequent suffering. And there was suffering, but it happened to somebody else because I don't remember it. And the third thing is, it's not like a diagnosis of something like cancer. You're always getting better from Mm. a car crash. And even if, uh, I mean, I'm very conscious of the brain damage that I experienced and the damage that that has done to my memory and stuff. But even if there is remainder damage, life is pretty damn good after a car crash. Whereas with many other illnesses, I I despise the phrase. Who was it? Susan? Anyway, a writer talked about um, the awfulness of the phrase fighting cancer. Oh, yeah. Because it implies that if you're courageous enough, you'll see it down. And that's simply not the case, no matter how you fight it. Yeah, and I've always hated that phrase, they lost their battle with cancer. It's so judgmental. It's it's dishonest and bad. Mm. And the great thing is, after an accident, that you're not battling anything. The world is reopening to you and you just discover oddities like being in a wheelchair for a year is actually not that bad. Being on crutches for three weeks is a pain in the arse because you can't (laughs) carry anything. You can't carry a cup of coffee if you're on crutches. Whereas in a wheelchair, it's grand. You just get kissed a lot. Oh, well, that's nice. Well, it depends. Uh, Well, true. Um, Now, you're a writer. Yes. And and when you began writing, you used to use pseudonyms. Um, and you told the Sunday Business Post a couple of years ago that at one stage you had 11 pseudonyms and uh, that you can't do that anymore, which is true. But you said it was better to be somebody else for particular things. Also, I loved being somebody else. I've always loved being somebody else. I love not being me. Explain. I actually wrote one of my novels is about a girl who, to escape the problems of her life, goes to America to a place called Peoria and becomes somebody else. And I I researched it all and it was one of the most enjoyable books to write. I love the thing. I loved it when I was in the theatre, stepping out on stage as somebody else and convincing 600 people that I was that somebody else. And convincing myself at the same time. I think it's just wonderful to be able to put aside 
the normal stuff of your life and be somebody else, explore somebody else's life for for a short time. So who are you at home then? When you stop being Terry prone, who are you? No, I don't stop being Terry prone. And this is one of the things that drives me nuts. <laughs> when people say to, people come in to be trained by me and I say, okay, what advice have you been given so far? And sure as eggs, one of them will say, um, I was told to just be myself. Oh, yeah. And I want to go and find and smack the person who said that because you know that we have many selves. The person that you are with your children is not the same person as sitting in this studio. But it it is all you. It adds up to the totality of you. So that there is an aspect of me that is confident, public, authoritative, opinionated, some might say pain in the ass. And there is an aspect, a very strong aspect of me that is reclusive, introverted, silent, quiet and uninvolved. I I have no social life. I do not go to parties, to dinners, to receptions, to anything like that. Why not? I suppose I found out very early that people in books are more interesting than real people. So are you bored? If you went to a party, would you be bored? And you also have to perform. Do you You, drink? No. I gave up drinking when I was 17. And do you think that helps people get through social things, that it's... Yes, it's, and it's, it's easier the most if you're drinking. Dangerous thing. It's the most mm. dangerous thing. I think that drinking is an anesthetic against the pain of trying to engage with people that you don't really like. Um, I I learned early that I could do fine at a social event because all I had to do was be interested in the other person. People like to talk about themselves. Mm. People are interesting enough. But it's it's available in a more condensed form in a book and you don't have to dress up or put makeup on. Now, but having said that, you know an awful lot of people. You have been advising um, people in the political and media and um, business establishment for decades. Um, about politicians, who's been your favourite politician over the years, either as a person or in terms of what they achieved? Ah, Dr. John. Dr. John. Um, Dr. John O'Connell was, he's no longer with us, he was a Labour Party man who eventually, to my horror at the time, joined Fianna Fáil. And um, I can remember, because my father was so left-wing, he had a great admiration for any... So I had heard about Dr. John O'Connell. Dr. John O'Connell was the man who... As a GP, during the really poverty-stricken years in Dublin, served the Dublin slums. He was a legend for his generosity to people. And so uh, one day I got this phone call at home and this voice said, Terry. And I said, yeah. He said, this is Dr. John, Dr. John O'Connell. And I'm going, yeah. And he says he wants me to work with him before the next general election. He was actually the first politician I ever worked with and I had no clue what I was doing, but we got him elected. And he was the most astonishingly genuine man, but also he had a thing that I find most modern politicians don't have. He had the capacity to tell stories that would root you to the ground. He was saying that 
because he had come from dirt poverty himself. His mother couldn't read or write. His father could write, but he couldn't punctuate. So if he sent you a letter, it was one continuous sentence over three pages. And when John became a doctor, against all the odds, he wanted to put all that behind him and get rich. Now, he did get rich, but a Jewish doctor friend of his who had studied with him came to see him and said, why don't you come out with me one night? And John said, all right. And the Jewish doctor took him through the tenements and took him up the big staircase and on right to a tiny room at the top. And he knocked at the door, no answer, opened the door, and there was a man in a bed on the other side of a very, very small room. But John said that just as he was about to step into the room, the Jewish doctor put his hand out and prevented him and said, look at the floor, look at the floor. And the floor was alive. The floor was a moving grey carpet and John had no idea what to make of it. And the Jewish doctor said, um, bed bugs, he's dead. They leave the body the minute somebody dies. Oh my God. And John is standing there and he thought he knew poverty and he realised he didn't know poverty at all. And the Jewish doctor said to him, this is where you should be. This is, this is where we need you. And so John committed himself totally and never gave up on his fight for the poor. When the thalidomide disaster happened, many of your listeners will be too young to remember, uh, thalidomide was a drug that was given to pregnant women to stop them throwing up. And it had the most dire consequences for their babies. Their babies were born without limbs or with limbs. For example, you could have a little hand coming out of a shoulder. So we still have about 60 people in Ireland who are victims of thalidomide. And they're now facing into real problems because in order to survive and work, they had to use what limbs they had in ways that affront the rest of their bodies so they're now in constant pain and limitation. But John O'Connell discovered the thalidomide thing and he fought the German makers and distillers in Britain to a standstill in order to get compensation for the victims. That to me is was uh, an imprinting experience. I am not cynical about politicians. I admire politicians I admire politicians today. I admire politicians in Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Labour. Almost all of the political parties I have worked with at various times. And I think the easy cynicism that says, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Mm. Or that somebody is just doing spin or that they only care about themselves. We wouldn't be allowed to say that about any other profession. And it's cheap and stupid, the kind of cynical knowingness that is applied to politicians. They're as good or bad as the rest of us. And in my experience, over, whoa, nearly 50 years, they're better than most people. Dare I mention the word retirement? No. (laughs) No. And do you know something? It drives me insane when people... Let's say that I do one of these breakfast things and... I'm usually, not always, but I'm usually pretty good and people come up to me afterwards and ask me questions and do you have a business card and all that jazz. And one of them will eventually say, are you still working? (laughs) And I'm thinking, well, what did you think the performance of the last hour was, that I do this just for fun? And then I've been finding out recently that a lot of women 
from their mid-50s on, and obviously I'm a hell of a lot further on, are being backed into a corner of, well, you really should retire. Do you know, would you not like to do a bit of gardening? Would you not like to take it easy? Do you know, we've a really good mentoring programme. You'd be great on it. And I'm saying to them, don't take this. This is nonsense. In America, I was fascinated to find out a few years ago, again, research for a book. If you are a man or a woman, 45 years of age, and you decide, I'd like to be a firefighter, there is nothing stopping you. Nobody says, well, we only take people up to 30. If you can do the gruelling physicals of the job and prove it to them, you get the job. That's the way we should be regarding ageing. If somebody wants to go home and garden, I would rather be dead. Then more power to them. Let them have the choice. Otherwise, let us remember that the old age pension was brought in by Kaiser, whatever his name was, um, at a time when most people died before they were 50. So it was dead easy for him to say, we give everybody an old age pension at 60, because most of them were dead. Let's completely relook at this thing. And instead of saying, how do we keep the millennials happy with all their skills and stay with this company? How do you keep the 60-year-olds with all their skills and maybe also experience happy and stay with you? Terry Prone, I have to leave it there for this morning. Many thanks and keep soldiering on. You are an inspiration. Yates on Sunday. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you.